History likes to tell you a very specific story. Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. A new report from the Prison Policy Initiative reveals that South Dakota, one of the country's least populous states, jails the most people per capita. In 2016, South Dakota incarcerated about 25,000 people, almost 3% of the state's population, and nearly twice the national average. South Dakota's crime rate, however, is below the national average. South Dakotans are disproportionately arrested for drugs and nonviolent crimes. Almost 50% of all arrests in the state are related to drugs or alcohol. The national figure is 29%. 85% of arrests in South Dakota are for nonviolent crimes. That's slightly above the national average. In South Dakota, Native Americans are arrested and incarcerated disproportionately. Although they constitute only 8.7% of the state's population, they make up about 50% of those incarcerated. Data from the Vera Institute of Justice indicates that Native Americans aged 15 to 64 are incarcerated at 10 times the rate of whites in South Dakota. Nabani Abienwi, a 37-year-old man from Cameroon, died in custody at the Ote Mesa Detention Center in San Diego. He was the ninth ICE detainee to die in custody this year. We covered prisoner struggles against abusive conditions in Ote Mesa, as well as solidarity efforts outside, in a KiteLine episode in late 2018. Keith Malik Washington, an imprisoned organizer for the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee in Texas, wrote a public letter of support addressed to the prisoners of South Carolina. Conditions in South Carolina continue to deteriorate amid both neglect and repression, yet prisoners there have continued to organize and take brave stands. Here's a statement. Revolutionary greetings, comrades and all fellow workers throughout the world. It seems like only yesterday when we all heard about the bloody riot that occurred at Lee County Correctional Facility in South Carolina. Too many of our incarcerated comrades died. I remember the call that was made for a national prison work stoppage in 2018. I didn't hesitate to answer the call. Our comrades at the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee did not hesitate to answer the call or lend their support. Amani Sawari and her comrades from Jailhouse Lawyers Speak were on the front lines of the struggle for human rights. I knew the real reason for the work stoppage. I knew about the inhumane prison conditions in South Carolina. I knew that the state prison officials were attempting to control the narrative that was fed to the public at large. They claimed that the violence at Lee County was all about drugs, cell phones, and turf wars. The warriors and freedom fighters at the Free South Carolina movement reminded all of us what the oppressors were attempting to suppress. The oppressors forgot to mention the lack of rehabilitative programming in South Carolina prisons. They forget to say anything about the squalid living conditions and the deadly extreme heat which is killing prisoners right now. They forgot to talk about the antiquated and bigoted criminal justice system which continues to manifest and perpetuate a program of modern-day slavery. The spirit of Denmark Vesey lives, George Jackson lives. Today, the oppression has, if anything, intensified. Many prisons are still on and off lockdown two years after the riot at Lee that touched off the 2018 prison strike. 
Friends and family of loved ones in South Carolina are organizing. The current demand is for removal of the steel plates installed over the cell windows in some institutions, denying all natural light for the duration of the lockdowns. But change is slow and folks lose hope. The oppressors who operate these slave camps in South Carolina need to know the struggle for freedom, justice, and equality for all is alive. We demand dignity, respect, and humane treatment for our comrades in South Carolina now. Locking human beings in cages for months at a time is not rehabilitation, it is torture. Congressman James Clyburn must be encouraged strongly to get involved here. Presidential candidates Bernie Sanders, Cory Booker, and Elizabeth Warren, as well as Kamala Harris, had some strong words in regard to criminal justice reform at the most recent presidential debate that was held in Houston, Texas. Well, now they all have an opportunity to put some muscle with they hustle and show us what they're talking about. Speak out right now about what is happening to the incarcerated human beings trapped in these slave camps in South Carolina. Comrades, the struggle for human rights and prison abolition is a protracted struggle. There will be ups and downs. Make this message go viral, y'all. Let's see what these politicians are really about. Dare to struggle, dare to win. All power to the people. This week, we pick up where we left off with Anastasia Schmid. Recently released after winning her freedom, she talks to KiteLine about the daily trauma women experience, both inside and outside of the walls. Here she is. Sad but true, the traumatization of women is the norm. This is why we ignore it. This is why it's silence. This is why nobody pays any attention to it. We expect women to be traumatized. We expect women to be objectified. We expect women to be quiet and submissive and subservient in all regards. I, I don't care that we're in 2019 and we like to talk all this good stuff everywhere on women's rights and women's liberation and, you know, the Me Too movements and just say no and a blah, blah, on and on and on. Once again, we have two different stories happening. We have the reality of life and then we have the rhetoric of what we're telling ourselves. And reality is a very, very different truth than the rhetoric. Women are victimized daily. It's everyday life, it's everyday practice, it's everywhere you go. It's in the home, it's in the workplace, it's down the street, it's in school, it's in politics, it's in everything. There's nowhere you're going that a woman is not being victimized in some way. We victimize women with our words, with our actions, uh, with inequality in myriad ways. It's so much the norm that people don't really think about it. You know, we only want to think about it when it comes to the most horrific situations. And even then, we're not fully thinking about it. Even then, even when a woman has been victimized in the worst senses of the word, uh, brutalities of rapes and beatings and uh, childhood molestations and all these extremely horrific things that on the surface level, people are just mortified and horrified and outraged, and this is horrible and it shouldn't happen. We say these things, but in reality, when it does happen, we're a victim-blaming society. Well, what did you say? What did you do? Why were you dressed that way? What were you doing in that part of town? Why were you wandering alone down the street at night? I mean, on and on and on. I don't think there's a woman alive who hasn't heard one of these things at some point time or another. We want to know why was the woman doing or failing to do something in order to cause 
her victimization. We can't for one single solitary minute accept that maybe a woman was victimized solely because she's a woman. That she didn't have to do or say anything. She didn't have to fail to do or say anything to cause that victimization. It was expected. It was the norm. It was everyday common practice. We just take for granted this is what we're doing. I mean, my God, look at the President of the United States today. Look at the statements he's made. It's so damn commonplace, we barely bat an eye to hear comments like this being made out of our world leaders. That's how common practice the victimization of women is. It is just so much the norm that how do you untangle it until we stop making it the norm? How do you stop it until we start saying, you know what, it's, it's no longer okay or acceptable for this to be going on day in and day out in every sector of life. So, you know, we have to look deeper at just what's happening in everyday life. We have to look at the stories we're telling ourselves. And this is a key point of the work I've done with women over the years. It's bad enough that the male side of our society has victimized and traumatized us as badly as they have. But my opinion, what's even worse, is the ways women have started victimizing and harming one another. The way women are in competition and tearing each other down and finding ways to berate and further objectify and shame and guilt and all of these horrible things that women are putting on other women. Not okay. Not okay. We, we have to start saying, what is it that makes me think it's okay for me to tear down another woman? Haven't I been torn down enough? Hasn't she been torn down enough? What in the hell do we look like tearing down each other on top of it? You, no wonder men seem to think it's okay to continue to do these things to women. No wonder the system thinks it's okay to continue to do these things to women when we're doing it to ourselves and we're doing it to each other now. You know, and, and I think one of the things that I have found, you know, being a survivor of domestic violence and sexual violence and violence pretty much in every sense of the word that has become so disturbing to me is that I have been asked no less than a million times, why didn't I just leave an abusive relationship? Number one, it is a question that comes from complete ignorance. It is so far more complex than what we're addressing and we're talking about and we're dealing with. But that's not the thing that's disturbing to me. The thing that's disturbing to me is that while I have been asked that question no less than a million times, and might I add, I've asked myself that question a million times, the question not a single solitary person has ever asked me was, why was he victimizing me? Why was he doing it? Why don't we question that? Why do we always want to know what did the woman do or fail to do to cause it? But we never ask, why was the perpetrator doing it? Uh, you know, I think on some level, 
uh, we're conditioned to think and believe that you know women are the caretakers, we're the nurturers of society, of relationships, uh, and to a point, I'm going to agree with that. You know, um, and maybe it is because of conditioning, more so than innate uh, natural sense, but. I'm not arguing that point. I'm not negating it. I mean, how or why we're nurturing is kind of irrelevant. The fact is that nurturing's there. And great, let's go with it. I mean, whoever said nurturing was a bad thing? So you know, we should be proud and happy to be nurturers and fully and wholeheartedly giving in that. And so, you know, I think that's one of the things that we've lost over time is a certain level and depth to nurturing and care. We keep things so surface now, and that's why we have a lot of the problems we have. So particularly on the inside, you know, there's so many people lost, broken, hurting, confused, alone, isolated, nowhere to turn, don't even know where the hell to start. That it's, you know, as I've said, it's imperative that we need one another to fulfill our own needs and each other's needs. And this is where that really comes into play. You know, uh, the person just starting out, and this is in any capacity, when someone is just starting anywhere, they can't do it on their own. Let's look at a newborn baby. A baby is going to fall how many times before it learns to walk? And we try to assist the baby in that process. A child is going to fall how many times before it learns how to ride a bike? We're going to help them gain their balance and get to go. Uh, a child in school is going to stumble. They're going to be confused. They're going to have questions. And this is why we have a teacher there, to help guide them, to help show them the way. This is true in all aspects of life. We need somebody there to help us out with the struggle, to help point us in the right direction, to give us options and opportunities and um, encouragement. I think that's a big one. We need people who are living examples. And I think that's really key too, that you know, it's really easy for a lot of people to stand around and say a lot of things. It's really easy for people to quote unquote know things, but do you know something because of a book or do you know something because you've lived it? Two very different things. And this is one of the key flaws I found inside the system, was that even in so many of the programs that were quote-unquote there to rehabilitate someone, they fell short. Why? Because the people leading the group had zero direct experience. They didn't have any idea what it was like to actually live with those issues or those problems or under those circumstances. What they knew, they knew solely from a textbook, and they were insufficient. They could never get to the heart and the core of the human being that suffered from whatever the problem or the condition was. Things always stayed on a surface to some level, or under what the authority figure deemed as being important or worthy or needing to happen for change to occur, and it missed the mark completely. It was nowhere near the reality of what the human being was experiencing or what they actually needed. And so we need mentors in the world who I, I like to call we're the been there, done that club. 
I walked through that mess, been through it, experienced it, dealt with it, but more importantly, found my way out to the other side. And because I found my way out to the other side, now I have a gift and an ability to help somebody else figure out how they too can do it from themselves. You know, and, and that's uh, important too. You know, it's not about somebody doing the work for you. It's about somebody supporting you in the work you're doing for yourself, giving a little guidance when needed, um, helping you help yourself be accountable and be responsible, you know, and just assisting in the process and to really live the example. You know, I have to show you who I am, not tell you who I am. So we go back to the question of who am I? I'll never be able to tell you. I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you by the life that I'm living every day. What am I doing every day? That tells you who I am. How do I spend my time? And I try to spend every day in some way, in some capacity, being for another human being the person that I myself so desperately needed at one point in time, but there was nobody there. When I needed it, the person wasn't there. And so when I see a person struggling or striving or wanting something more or looking or seeking or whatever the case may be, if I have the ability to be of assistance there, then that's what I do. I offer that assistance. Not that I'm going to do it for you. Not that I'm going to carry you through this. But that I'm going to say, hey, I've been there. You're not alone. And maybe you should try this. Maybe it's going to work for you and maybe it's not. But here's a whole bunch of different things that I have found will work. Try them for yourself. See if it works. And if I can't help you, well, I probably know somebody who can. Let me point you in that direction. Nothing's really changed. Here we are bordering 200 years later from where some of the bane of my research uh, begins. And it's the same story. It's the same story over and over and over again. And, you know, in the early days of the research project, uh, you know, I got into kind of some heated debates with some of my professors. And, you know, my theories they thought were just ludicrous and so far-fetched. And, oh, come on now, you know, surely all these horrific things were not happening. You know, how can you make these claims? Where are you coming up with these things? And... You know, I finally had to be as honest and truthful as I could be and say, well, I can make these claims and I know these things because I am that woman. I am that woman. In the 21st century, I am experiencing on so many different levels the exact same thing that the women in the 19th century experienced. We are one and the same. One and the same. But I realize Part of the importance of this work is to get people to understand, once again, this isn't happening in a vacuum. This is not something new and something that's just a, a contemporary problem. The problem's been going on all along. Let's go back to that question of truth, though, and the subjectivity of truth. 
History likes to tell you a very specific story. They will paint things in the best light or in the most justifiable light. They sort of gloss over and fail to provide all the nasty, nuanced little details of these things that have happened. More so, not so much what happened, but let's talk about why it happened. Let's look at who had what at stake in the things that happened. Because again, it didn't happen in a vacuum. There were very specific reasons that things were being done to very specific people in very specific places at very specific times. But those are the details that we're not looking at. Those are the things that either have been omitted completely or have been glossed over or disregarded or it's just an aside, an afterthought. It's not the main subject of inquiry or discussion. And this is what we need to start looking at. We need to look deeper. Okay, yes, horrible things happened, but it's more than just saying horrible things happened. Who were the players involved in these horrible things? How did all this transpire? What was the real reason for it? And once again, who had what to gain from this? What was to be gained and what was to be lost in all of these circumstances? Because surely there were things to be gained and lost or it wouldn't have happened. I mean, so... I am the embodiment of these women. And so are all of the other women that sit around me, both the women that were inside the prison and the women outside of the prison. This is what I realize. Every woman in America today that decides to go see a gynecologist is part of that legacy and they don't even realize it. Part of a legacy of offering up our bodies to a very masculine system that sought knowledge of our bodies for the sake of power and control. Why do we not question why we are going to these types of medical professionals when there is nothing wrong with Gynecological exams are routine business for women today. We subject our young girls to these things. Oh, you have to do it. You have to go get these examinations at least once a year. Why? Prior to the 19th century, no woman was doing that. They certainly weren't doing it to some strange man that they didn't know. But we do this now. We don't question it. We don't ask why. No wonder why the victimization of women is common everyday practice. It is common everyday practice. Down to the fact that we willingly subject ourselves to these things. For what? It's, it's almost like we seek disease in ourselves and in one another. There isn't a damn thing wrong with us, but we go and we seek a quote-unquote checkup but there's nothing wrong. So when you go to a checkup and there's nothing wrong, does that not leave space to create something to be wrong? We have to have something to treat, don't we? And then what is involved in treatment? Who is being treated for what and why and what end and what means? And is it a treatment that's actually necessary? 
Or is it one more thing for capitalist gain? Is it one more thing for power and control? Is it one more thing to take the power of a single human being and relinquish it to another because we are taught to believe we are incapable of being healthy, happy, and whole on our own? This is a huge thing that I discuss in my work with epistemic injustice. The labels we're putting on people, uh, the imagery we're attaching to people, uh, the specific testimonies that are included as well as the testimonies that are excluded, and why we're doing this, why we frame things in these ways. When we take very negative labels, and we put them upon a person, or labels that I'm gonna call them negative because they automatically invoke negative thought and negative imagery, just nothing pleasant when people hear them. Let's take the word criminal. Nobody can hear the word criminal and think something good behind that. It's an automatic, it's a visceral response. It's a subconscious response to those words the most liberal, radical, free-thinking person in the world hears words like criminal, felon, inmate, convict, or, or, you know, my personal thorn in the side, offender, and automatically think certain images and certain things behind that. We get an image, and where does the image come from? Well, you're conditioned into it newspapers, televisions, books, movies, all of these kind of things, whether you realize it or not, has placed these subconscious thoughts and images inside you as to what these words and these labels mean. And so the second the mind goes into that autopilot with that visceral feeling and automatic negative thought process and stereotypical pattern of thinking in a negative fashion behind these things, we can't see anything beyond that. We've shut ourselves off. We've closed ourselves off to looking deeper or seeing something more. Mental illness is another one of those things. You know, the second you put these labels on, there goes automatic invisibility, silencing, and non-humanity inferiority in some level. We hear these words and we think this is someone who is deficient, defective, inferior, separate, not like me. And so we don't have time or space or deeper thought. It's cut off right there. You don't see any deeper than that. We're not looking at the totality of the human being. We're looking and seeing only through the lens of the label which I'm not negating whether the label is true or false, that's irrelevant. The point is that the label itself is the ultimate isolator, silencer, and separator among people. And so we have to look at how we're labeling people, why we're labeling them, and then what is the end result of those labels, not only for the human being, but for society as a whole. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402.
You can hear previous episodes of our show at wfhb.org forward slash KiteLine. For more information on the stories we air on KiteLine, check out kitelineradio.noblogs.org. If you or someone you care about has been affected by the prison system, you can call us to be interviewed or to record a message to be played on the air at 812-269-2512. We also want your feedback and to share your story. Feel free to write us at KiteLine at wfhb.org. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. If you want to support our work, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio Show. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.